All right, we're starting on chapter 3 of Jeremiah. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? Now, in our day and time, it's not unheard of for a couple to get divorced, go get married to other people, at least one of them, that marriage fall through, and then they get back together. That's not unheard of at all. But when the Lord taught the Israelites his path, he told them not to do that. That's right. And, and, and you'll find that in Deuteronomy 24, the first four verses. But there's something interesting in Deuteronomy 4, those first four verses. It says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies... Then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. So that's just the law, right? He's he's just laying it out. It's the next sentence that's interesting. The next sentence says, Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now look at a kind of a sister verse in Leviticus 18, okay, which is before Deuteronomy. Leviticus 18, verses 26 and 20 through 28. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native born and the aliens living among you must not do any of these detestable things, for all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. It gives kind of an interesting twist on the whole idea of conservation and stewardship of the earth. It's not just about recycling and responsible consumerism. The earth that we live in, the land we live on, is affected by our choices and by our actions. It's affected by our hearts. So we can do as a nation, and should do, all of the recycling and the responsible living in terms, in worldly terms, but it will not heal the problems with the land until we make the heart choices towards the Lord. And that is exactly what the first verse in Jeremiah 3 is saying. It's saying the land would be defiled by this sin. All right? That's not just an Old Testament kind of a, theory either. Look at Romans 8 verses 20 and 21. Romans 8, wonderful chapter. For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Creation, the land, as well as the animals, are affected by our salvation and by our freedom, is what that's saying. Creation, when it says creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Well, only God can do that, right? That's referring to Genesis 3, verses 17 and the few verses after that, when Adam was getting thrown out of the Garden of Eden. And we always focus on the part where it says Adam's going to have to toil and labor, you know, for his food from now on. He can't just pick the fruit from the trees. But what it also says there is that the ground itself was cursed at that point. It was not 
just man. It was create creation that was cursed at that point. So when is Adam's curse going to end? When does that happen? Christ comes. Christ comes. That's right. Obviously, the crucifixion broke the power of sin and death. But we still live with sin and death, do we not? And that part doesn't go away until Christ comes the second time and there's the thousand-year reign, okay, on earth, where he actually is king on earth for a thousand years. There's lots of references to the fact that at that point, not only do our lifespans change, but the, the animals change. Lions lay down with the lambs, okay? The, the actual vegetation changes. And we're going to read some of those passages later in the study tonight. So let's go back to Jeremiah 3, 1 through 5. And it, it says, if, if a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived, and he's talking you in the broad sense, the nation. You have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. And he's talking about the idol worship. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? Look up at the barren heights and see, is there any place where you have not been ravished? And he's talking about those high places where they built the altars to Baal, the, the idol Baal. By the roadside, you sat waiting for lovers, sat like a nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withheld and no spring rains have fallen. So this tells us that the Lord has been trying to get their attention with a drought. And it's obviously not worked. Yet, you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. Have you not just called to me? And this is what they're saying. This is... This, this really infuriates the Lord. The nation says, My father, my friend from my youth, will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? And God says, This is how you talk, but you do all the evil you can. The Lord has never cared very much about what we say with our lips. Okay, if it was different than what we're saying with our hearts. He looks at the fruit in our lives because the fruit in our lives comes from what's in our hearts. If the love of the Lord is in our hearts, then we will see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Jesus said this. He said this a lot of times, but one of the places he said this was in Matthew 7, verse 16. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you can recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. We instinctively know good fruit from bad fruit in lives. You were just talking about that a second ago, Troy. There are lists in scripture of the fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5.22 has a list, as you all know, from your Beth Moore study. And also, just before that list, I don't know if she backed up a little, but there's, there's a list of the characteristics of lives that are yielding bad fruit. All right. But, you know, we, didn't, we don't even really need those lists to be able to look at our own lives and evaluate whether the fruit in our own life is good or or worthless. And I put there, kind of on your handouts, that that's, that's your assignment, should you choose to accept it this week, is to reflect on that. And just list what comes to mind 
as you think of the good fruit and the bad fruit in your life, list them both. What do you actually see? Not what you wish was there. What do you see in evidence in your relationships and in your life? What if you see a lot of bad fruit? Uh, you know, some people don't want to do this exercise because they already know they're going to see a lot more bad fruit than they see good fruit. And so they avoid the exercise. What can you do about it? It can be very overwhelming and you can feel powerless to deal with the bad fruit in your life because we're talking about a group of Christians here. We've already asked Christ into our life. And now we're looking at a gap between what we know we should be and what we are. And the longer we've been a Christian, the harder it is for us to admit the gap. All right? And, and that's part of why we share things like our food for thought cards. You know, I've been a Christian my whole life. And, and I told you earlier this evening, I see a gap in my life. And, and I'm taking it to the Lord. I think one of the most beautiful answers to how to deal with that gap, with the, if you see bad fruit instead of good fruit, you know, predominantly in your life, one of the most beautiful answers to this is expressed in a little allegory titled Hind's Feet on High Places. Have you all ever read that? One person. Okay, well, you're in for a treat. It's a story of a woman named Much Afraid. And she has crippled, twisted feet and a disfigured face. Her, her, her mouth is even twisted. And she was held captive in the Valley of Humiliation by her relatives, craven fear, dismal foreboding, gloomy and spiteful, who lived there in the Valley of Humiliation with her. But much afraid was a timid servant of the great shepherd. And one day he invited her to come to the high places with him to the kingdom of love. He promised to heal her crippled feet and give her hind's feet, not hind feet, hind's feet, as in deer's feet, a deer that can, can leap up the mountains, okay, which she could see from where she lived in the Valley of Humiliation. And it's right there that we pick up the story, and I'm just going to read you a little bit of the story of Much Afraid, because it deals with the gap that she perceived in her own heart. The shepherd, the good shepherd, is speaking to Much Afraid. Are you willing to be changed completely, Much Afraid, and to be made like the new name which you will receive if you become a citizen in the kingdom of love? She nodded her head and then said very earnestly, Yes, I am. Again he smiled, but added gravely, There is still one thing more, the most important of all. No one is allowed to dwell in the kingdom of love unless they have the flower of love already blooming in their hearts. Has love been planted in your heart, much afraid? As the shepherd said this, he looked at her very steadily, and she realized that his eyes were searching into the very depths of her heart and knew all that was there far better than she did herself. She did not answer for a long time, because she was not sure what to say. But she looked rather flinchingly into the eyes which were gazing at her so penetratingly, and became aware that they had the power of reflecting what they looked upon. She could thus really see her own heart as he saw it. So after a long pause, she answered, I think that what is growing there is a great longing to experience the joy of natural human love and to learn to love supremely one person who will love me in return. But perhaps that desire, natural and right as it seems, is not the love of which you're speaking. She paused and then added honestly and almost tremblingly, I see the longing to be loved and admired growing in my heart, shepherd, 
but I don't think I see the kind of love you're talking about. At least, nothing like the love which I see in you. Then will you let me plant the seed of love in your heart now, asked the shepherd. It will take you some time to develop hind's feet and to climb to the high places, and if I put the seed in your heart now, it will be ready to bloom by the time you get there. Much Afraid shrank back. I am afraid, she said. I've been told that if you really love someone, you give that loved one the power to hurt and pain you in a way nothing else can. That is true, agreed the shepherd. To love does mean to put yourself into the power of the loved one and to become very vulnerable to pain. And you are very much afraid of pain, are you not? She nodded miserably and then said shamefacedly, Yes, very much afraid of it. But it is so happy to love, said the shepherd quietly. It is happy to love, even if you're not loved in return. There is pain, too, certainly, but love does not think that very significant. Much afraid thought suddenly that he had the most patient eyes she had ever seen. At the same time, there was something in the, them that hurt her to the heart, though she could not have said why. But she still shrank back in fear and said, bringing the words out very quickly because somehow she was ashamed to say them, I would never dare to love unless I were sure of being loved in return. If I let you plant the seed of love in my heart, will you give me the promise that I shall be loved in return? I couldn't bear it otherwise. The smile he turned on her was the gentlest and kindest she had ever seen. Yet once again, and for some indefinable reason, it cut her to the quick. Yes, he said without hesitation, I promise you much afraid that when the plant of love is ready to bloom in your heart and when you are ready to change your name, then you will be loved in return. A thrill of joy went through her from head to foot. It seemed too wonderful to be believed, but the shepherd himself was making the promise. And of one thing she was quite sure, he could not lie. Please plant love in my heart now, she said faintly little soul. She was still much afraid, even when promised the greatest thing in the world. The shepherd put his hand in his bosom and drew something forth and laid it in the palm of his hand. Then he held his hand out towards much afraid. Here is the seed of love, he said. She bent forward to look, then gave a startled little cry and drew back. There was indeed a seed lying in the palm of his hand, but it was shaped exactly like a long, sharply pointed thorn. Much afraid had often noticed that the shepherd's hands were scarred and wounded, but now she saw that the scar in the palm of the hand held out to her was the exact shape and size of the seed of love lying next to it. The seed looks very sharp, she said shrinkingly. Won't it hurt if it, you put it in my heart? He answered gently. It is so sharp that it slips in very quickly. But much afraid, I have already warned you that love and pain go together for a time at least. If you would know love, you must know pain too. Much afraid looked at the thorn and shrank from it. Then she looked at the shepherd's face and repeated his words to herself. When the seed of love in your heart is ready to bloom, you will be loved in return. And a strange new courage entered her. She suddenly stepped forward, bared her heart, and said, Please, plant the seed here in my heart. His face lit up with a glad smile, and he said with a note of joy in his voice, Now you will be able to go with me to the high places and be a citizen in the kingdom of my father. Then he pressed the thorn into her heart. It was true, just as he had said. It did cause a piercing pain. But it slipped in quickly, and then suddenly, a sweetness she had never felt or imagined before tingled through her. It was bittersweet, but the sweetness was stronger. <clears throat> From this point forward, Much Afraid begins a long journey. And if you read this little book, 
you will recognize that journey. At each step, she shed old habits, thoughts of fear and captivity, and the seed of love grew stronger in her heart. Her feet slowly strengthened, and the shepherd sent her companions along her journey, and he himself always came when she called. And in the end, she did reach the kingdom of love, and the flower of love bloomed in her heart. That is how good fruit grows in our hearts and how bad fruit is stripped away. It's not sudden. It starts with a commitment to the process and to the God who can change our hearts. Jesus had this to say in Luke 13, verses 6 through 9. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it. Luke 13, 6 through 9. He went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. You can read even more about what Jesus had to say about this in John 15. But the point is that God does not throw you away or condemn you because you have bad fruit. Instead, he gives you the time and resources to make a change. Dig around your heart and fertilize it. If you see more bad fruit than you want to see in your life, Begin to think about what is causing those weeds in your life. Pay attention to what you're feeding your soul. Be intentional about weeding out the bad and sowing the good. Consider what you're reading, what you're listening to, what you are watching. And like Wayne said before we started, consider who you hang with. Consider how you invest your time. That is the fertilizer you're putting around your heart. If you don't like the fruit and you have made the commitment to Christ, the problem is not your commitment. The problem is the fertilizer you're using. But whatever you do, don't despise this opportunity. If Jeremiah teaches us anything, it's that the opportunities are not endless. Time eventually runs out. Jeremiah 3, again, verse 6. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there which, as you know, is referring to the idol worship of Baal on the high hills and the Asherah poles under the, every spreading tree. And he's talking about Israel, which was the ten northern kingdoms, which have at this point already been carried off into captivity to Assyria. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. So he's referring to the southern kingdom of Judah there. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. And he's obviously talking about Israel being taken into captivity. The Lord had been protecting them miraculously for 800 years. And he now lifted his hand off of Israel. And they were immediately taken into captivity. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah who was in the southern kingdom and who had not been carried off into captivity yet, Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. And because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. What does he mean Judah did not return to the Lord with all her heart, but only pretended to? This is where to pull out your handout and take a look at this one, the one that says Judah fakes it. 
This covers a period of about 10 years from 732 B.C. to 721 B.C. And there's a column just like on our other handout that we had with the kings of Israel and Judah. The first column is the kings of Israel, which are the 10 northern tribes. And the middle columns are a little different than the other handout I had given you um, at the beginning of the lessons. It's telling you what year of that king's reign. So we're starting in year one of Hosea's reign. You see how that reads? And it goes down through year nine. Then the kings of Judah are the last column. And Hosea came to power during year 12 of Ahaz's reign. Okay. So what happened was Ahaz, the king of Judah, bad, bad, bad guy, sacrificed his own son to an idol, offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places under every spreading tree, you know, the worship of the Ashtaroths. And God sent him Isaiah, Hosea, and Micah. I mean, he sent the big guns down there to talk to Ahaz because time is running out. Did Ahaz listen? No, Ahaz did not listen. Well, right there in the middle of Ahaz's, or near the end of Ahaz's reign, year 12 of Ahaz's reign, Hosea comes to power in Israel, the northern kingdom. And he is actually placed on the throne by Tiglath-Pileser III, who is the king of Assyria. At this point, Israel is already controlled by Assyria. And it's at this point, according to Tiglath-Pileser's historical records of his kingship, he took 10 talents of gold and 1,000 talents of silver as tribute from Israel. That's probably an annual tribute he was requiring. That, in today's numbers, is $13 million of gold and $28 million of silver. And this is a little tiny kingdom, okay, down there in northern Israel that he's taking this from. So that goes on for five years. And then Shalmaneser the fifth becomes king of Assyria. And Hosea decides he's going to stop paying his annual tribute. And so Shalmaneser, as soon as he realizes that, as soon as he doesn't get paid, he begins a three-year siege of Israel. The records in the Bible will say Samaria, but Samaria was the middle part, the, the part closest to Judah, okay, of, of, the, of the kingdom of Israel. Um, and at some point, he takes Hosea captive and puts him in prison. Look over and see what's happening in Judah at that same time that Hosea stops paying tribute and the three-year siege begins. Ahaz dies and Hezekiah becomes king. Hezekiah did what was right, removed all the high places, smashed the Asherah poles and altars and the other idols. He trusted in the Lord and the Lord made him successful in whatever he undertook, including refusing to pay tribute to the Assyrians. These guys are separated by 10 miles. I mean, we're, you know, we're talking border here, okay? And and look at the difference of what happened to the northern tribes of Israel who did not trust the Lord and what happened to the king of Judah who did trust the Lord. The Lord miraculously delivered Judah from the Assyrians when they did attack him. The problem was it was only as deep as the king. And the people in their hearts, did not give up their idols. We've seen over and over and over again in our study how Israel and the people of Judah were slaves at heart, and that continued. So they only just inform, you know, they only pretended to serve the Lord. And that's what the Lord's talking about in Jeremiah. He says they they weren't being serious. Well, look what happened to to Israel. In year 9 of Hosea's range, Shalmaneser conquered Samaria, Israel, and the Israelites are deported to Assyria. And here's the record of what happened. It's in 2 Kings 17, starting in verse 24. 2 Kings 17, verse 24. The king of Assyria, after he completely conquered Israel and deported them, brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Shepharavim, I said those all wrong, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. Because you don't want to just leave the land vacant, all right, the wild animals that take it over. They took over Samaria and lived in the towns. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. So he, meaning the Lord, sent lions among them and they killed some of the people. 
and it was reported to the king of Assyria. The people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of that country requires. He has sent lions among them, which are killing them off, because the people do not know what he requires. Then the king of Assyria gave this order. Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. Then you skip over to verse 33. They worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. And the reason I read you that, not only is that remarkable that the king of Assyria you know, extracted a priest and sent him down there to teach these deportees how to worship the God of that country and that that everybody knew the Lord was the God of that country. But it's helpful in understanding so much more that happens in the New Testament because what happened was Samaria was settled by these foreigners. They brought their own gods with them. They were taught how to worship the Lord, and they just kind of laid the Lord God in a thin veneer over the top of all of the rest of this, whereas Judah remained relatively, you know, pure in terms of how they worshiped the Lord, and there grew up this tension, and even you find in some Jewish literature the reference to the people of Samaria, northern Israel, of Israel, that whole area, up just south of the Sea of Galilee, okay, that, that just all along the Jordan River is where we're talking about, that refer to them, the Judith, Jewish um, writings refer to these people as lion converts because of this incident. And they became separate and created their own form of religion and their own way to worship the Lord God. And they drew a lot from Muslim in later years, from, from, from Islam, and just kind of got all kind of jumbled up in there together. So, so when you get down, you know, and obviously they had brought all these gods from their own countries even at the beginning. So when you get to the New Testament, the Samaritans have set up their own temple by that time. Samaritans were a dirty word to the Jews in southern Israel and around Jerusalem. So when you hear Jesus talk about the good Samaritan, he's talking about somebody they would have despised who is acting rightly. And when he talks to the woman at the well, he's talking not only to a woman, but to a woman of a nation they would have never had any association with. And it was all rooted in this incident right here. What happened in Judah was in, recorded in Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 6 through 10. Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 6. At the king, this is in the southern kingdom. At the king's command, couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from King Hezekiah and from his officials, which read, People of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to you who are left, who have escaped the hand of the king of Israel. So he's, the king is now sending letters up to the few Israel, the people who are living in Israel, in the northern kingdom. just the remnant that remain. He says, Do not be like your fathers and brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of your fathers, so that he made them an object of horror, as you see. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were. Submit to the Lord. Come to the sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. And he's referring to the temple in Jerusalem. Serve the Lord your God, so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. If you return to the Lord, then your brothers and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will come back to this land. 
For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. And the couriers went from town to town in Ephraim and Manasseh. And you know what it says happened? But the people scorned and ridiculed them. So the people in Israel, even after seeing what the Lord had done to their brothers and sisters, the few that remained just made fun of the king's couriers. Nevertheless, there were a few people from Israel and a lot of people from Judah who did heed this call and gathered together to celebrate Passover. And it was the first time Passover had been celebrated in this way since the days of Solomon, since the kingdom had divided into two pieces. And the Lord was with them and blessed them, but it was a small part of the population that was sincere. Apparently, most of the people participating were just doing it out of fear of the Assyrians, and they just, you know, really, it wasn't heartfelt. They were pretending, the Lord says, in Jeremiah. So in Jeremiah, verse 11, chapter 3, verse 11, the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. Why did he say that? Okay. Why was Israel better than Judah? Why was Israel more righteous? Well, remember what righteous means in the Old Testament. That term righteous means you fulfilled the terms of a contract. Okay? So think about it from your own point of view. If you make a contract with somebody, all right, which would you rather? Would you rather them, if they sign the contract and they're not going to do it, would you rather them just come up to you and tell you, look, I signed it, but I have no intention of fulfilling this contract? Or would you rather be dealing with the person who signed the contract and keeps telling you the check is in the mail? Well, duh, you'd a lot rather have that first person, right? That's what the Lord is saying. It, just be honest with me, he says. Don't BS me, okay? Don't... Tell me something different than what's really in your heart. <clears throat> Judah only pretended to love the Lord. Israel was more righteous because the people were honest about their apostasy, which is a fancy word that means falling away. Okay. Even after seeing the disaster that had befallen Israel, Judah still did not respect the Lord or take him seriously. So let's look at verse 12 in Jeremiah. Go proclaim this message toward the north. So here, here's, here's a message that Jeremiah, the young, poor, little, you know, 20-something-year-old Jeremiah is going to have to go out to say. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. He's talking to the northern kingdom. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. But return, return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town, two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days... When your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, men will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. This is a gigantic clue that tells us Jeremiah and the Lord are talking about the end times. How do we know that? Because of the last bit about the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. You see, the central feature in every temple, from the tabernacle on through every, every temple that was ever built, was the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, had the jar of manna, Aaron's rod that budded in, into an almond tree, and it had the, the law, the, the tablets of the law in there. And it was where the Spirit of the Lord hovered. It was so holy and so sacred that even the high priest could only enter it once a year. And when he did enter it, they would tie a rope around his ankle so they could drag him back out if he got struck dead while he was in there. 
This was serious stuff, all right? The Jews could never imagine, even today, of having a temple without having an Ark of the Covenant. It was a central feature. And yet, if we skip to the end of this story, we find out the 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 temple actually ends up getting destroyed and the Ark of the Covenant is stolen, probably by Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, probably melted down for the gold, all right, that it was covered with. And eventually, as the books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell us, a few Jews are going to be allowed to come back and rebuild the temple that gets destroyed when all these people get taken into captivity. And, and they rebuild a temple, but they don't have an ark to put in it. So you know what they put in it? They make a holy of holies. And they put a slab of stone where the ark is supposed to be. And they put it there because they miss it. They need it. They, there is a place, a platform waiting for the ark of the covenant that does not exist. They can't make another one. It's irreplaceable. But there's a place for it. And in fact, when, um, the, when Jerusalem was finally sacked and burned, um, shortly after Jesus' death, not long at all, after Jesus died, the the um, general that went in to the temple was astounded to find there was nothing in the Holy of Holies except this slab of stone. So what happens is told in the prophet Ezekiel. He tells us the rest of the story. He has a series of visions in which the Lord takes him on a tour of the temple. And it's the temple as he knows it, okay? And he sees, as, he, as the Lord takes him in this vision, he sees the elders, the men of Israel, and even the women of Israel in every part of this temple worshiping idols. And Ezekiel sees the Shekinah glory the glory of the Lord, the presence of the Lord that hovers over the Ark of the Covenant. He sees it lift up and leave the temple. Then he has a series of other visions. And your notes may not track with what I'm saying at this point because I'm skipping all around telling you stories. But (laughs) bear with me and we can catch up at the end. Because Ezekiel then has another series of visions and he sees a different temple. It is really different, has different dimensions, it has different characteristics, and he describes the temple, the priests, and the temple sacrifices that will occur in this future temple. Ezekiel 43, verse 7, he said, this is the angel who's taking Ezekiel around in his vision. Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is God speaking. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The house of Israel will never again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their prostitution and the lifeless idols of their kings at their high places. So when this temple comes into being, All idolatry has stopped, and the Lord is going to come back. The Shekinah glory is going to come back to the temple. And in Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel sees a river of water flowing out from under the south side of the temple. 47 verse 1. The man brought me back to the entrance of this new temple. And I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east, which was the direction the Shekinah glory had gone, and which is why Jesus comes from the east when he comes. Okay, The water was coming down from the south side of the temple, south of the altar. If you skip forward to verse 8 in chapter 47, he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows and there will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from the Engedi to the in Eglium. There will be places for spreading nets. 
The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit, now, this is the part I want you to notice, verse 12. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. Wow, that sounds really familiar. What does that sound like? River of life in Revelation, doesn't it? If we looked at Revelation 22, the first two verses, they say, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of nations." But there's one huge difference between Revelation and Ezekiel. Did you catch it? Did you catch the difference? The passage in Revelation is talking about the new Jerusalem in the new heaven and the new earth. Okay? After, this is after the thousand year reign. All right? The river is flowing from where in Revelation? No, where in Revelation, throne of God, because there is no temple in the new Jerusalem because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. Yet Ezekiel sees this almost identical vision with these this vegetation that is being fed from water flowing from the new temple. Right, and it's got and it's creating these trees from a river of, of life that is causing these trees to yield fruit every month and the leaves to be for healing of the nations. When can that happen? There's only one time that can happen, that can only happen during the millennium kingdom. Okay, and it's in that temple. And Ezekiel's description of that temple, that you see there is no Ark of the Covenant. That temple has no Ark. And we would not need it. Why would we not need an Ark of the Covenant in the temple of the Millennial Kingdom? Yeah, <laughs> got it in one, Ross, because you have Jesus. He's right there with us bodily. We don't need an Ark of the Covenant. So go back, now that you know that, to Jeremiah, and we know now that the Lord is speaking his forgiveness to the people of Israel and that it's not going to happen. They're not going to turn their hearts to God until Christ comes that second time. But here's the wonderful things that are going to happen. And by the way, remember at the beginning of the lesson, I told you the vegetation is affected by the choices of our hearts? That was one of the places in Scripture that, talk, that is explaining that change in the actual vegetation, you know, because of the Spirit of God. Verse 14, Jeremiah 3. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town, two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, men will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah will join the house of Israel, and together they will come from a northern land to the land I gave your forefathers as an inheritance. I myself said, 
How gladly would I treat you like sons and give you a desirable land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A cry is heard on the barren heights, the weeping and pleading of the people of Israel, because they have perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, faithless people. I will cure you of backsliding. That great promise to the people of Israel is a promise to us. Okay? If you're in that situation, or if you have a loved one in that situation, the promise is there for all of us. Return, faithless people, and I will cure you of backsliding. Yes, we will come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Surely the idolatrous commotion on the hills and mountains is a deception. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. From our youth, shameful gods have consumed the fruits of our father's labor. Their flocks and herds, their sons and daughters, let us lie down in our shame and let our disgrace cover us. We have sinned against the Lord our God, both we and our fathers, from our own youth till this day. We have not obeyed the Lord our God. If you will return, O Israel, return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a truthful, just, and righteous way you swear as surely as the Lord lives, which is the common swear of these people in these lands, they would always swear by whatever their God was. If you change your even your swearing to be, as the Lord lives, that's who I swear by. Then the nations will be blessed by him, and in him they will glory. We'll stop there.